Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. MCC is a non-denominational country-style church, just a short 20-minute drive from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we open it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be bringing it to us alive um, once again, just as you promised. And we thank you that you have uh, given us the privilege of being able to gather together freely, and we would just ask that in all ways we might glorify and honor your name. Amen. So uh, we're studying the book of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah, and it's been about a month since we last talked about Nehemiah, so I'm expecting you might have forgotten some of the details. So if you recall, Nehemiah, and you guys can answer on these ones, he was um, originally in what kingdom? Persia, Persia, right. (laughs) And who is the king? Artaxerxes. Perfect. Artaxerxes. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Just, Jan, maybe you could come up here and answer all of them. (laughs) Okay, and King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, which is over that whole empire, he sent Nehemiah back. Nehemiah had heard that Jerusalem's walls were down in a rubble heap, and he was mourning and grieving over this. But keeping it from the king, he wasn't showing the king his grief. Four months of prayer and fasting on Nehemiah's part. And the king says, what's the problem, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah is filled with fear because you're not supposed to be sorrowful around the king. And he says, "Um, well, and he quickly prays to God again. And God gives him the answer. And he says, Jerusalem's in a rubble heap. The temple's rebuilt, but the walls are still falling down. And uh, King Artaxerxes, he doesn't say, well, off with your head. He says, well, what can I do for you? And so he gives them all kinds of help and assistance. Nehemiah goes there, and um, he gets everybody involved, which I love that picture of God's people, that it takes everybody to be involved. It's not up to Nehemiah, or in his day, a contemporary of his was Ezra. It's not just a few strong people, it takes everybody. And when God does a work, especially a big work, he involves all of us. So God is doing a big work here at this church. So what can you expect? All of us are involved, not just one or two. And so uh, that brings us up to where we are. So he had all these different people in all, all around the whole wall rebuilding. Um, so then um, this is where our story picks up. So I'm just going to be reading out of uh, Nehemiah 6. I want to ask us a question before we start. And that is, would you like the Lord to do a great work through you? The Lord did a great work through Nehemiah. And so the question that we have is, what was the secret to his success? And that's what we're going to see today, is what was the secret to Nehemiah's success. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies. So that gives us a clue. Sanballat is uh, from the northern part. He's a Samaritan. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's from the other side of the Jordan River, um, his, his family group, but he's living here in Jerusalem. And Geshem, Geshem is an Arab who lives in the southern areas. So these guys are enemies of Israel, but they live in Jerusalem. And they're trying to stop the wall. They've been trying all along to stop Nehemiah unsuccessfully. Nehemiah's been able to just have the fortitude and to carry on. And if you remember... At one point when they were building, they had the sword in one hand and they were doing the building with the other hand. We called that the sword and the trowel. So sometimes it's like that. So these guys are still trying to stop the walls. And he says, um, now it came about, it was reported that I had rebuilt the wall. So they heard that, you know, the wall is all rebuilt. 
and that no breach remained in it, so the walls completed. Although at that time, I had not set up the doors and the gates, and there's 12 gates, so that's quite a few gates, and it's still not totally defended. So this is sort of the last-ditch effort on the part of the enemies to stop what's happening with the rebuilding of the wall. But Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Kephirim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. Because you know where Kephirim is? Kephirim is in the plain of Ono or on the very northern part of Nehemiah's sort of territory. And it's right on the edge of where um, it's enemy territory. So to leave it is about 15 kilometers away, and to leave the wall would take about a day's journey there, meet, and a day, you know, to get back again would be about a day altogether. And he would lose a day of work, but more importantly, he would be taken out of the center of Jerusalem to this faraway place where who knows what they'll do to him. And so he knew that they were planning to harm him. Have you ever had people that say, oh, well, let's talk? You know, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. And you go, this sounds dangerous. And that's exactly how he felt. So I sent messengers to them, this is Nehemiah speaking, saying, I am doing a great work. Isn't that great that he understood it? Do you know that when we are doing the Lord's work, we are doing a great work? And he says, and I cannot come down. When we are doing a great work, we cannot stop it. We don't stop it for the talk. We need to just keep plowing ahead, and that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He says, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And so that was the, the message that he gives to them. And they sent messages to me four times, so they didn't let up. They kept bugging him. Now, most of us, after all those messages, would finally say, all right, what? And he doesn't do that. He doesn't lose his focus. And so for four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat, now here's something very dangerous. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. So that means anybody can read it. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Gashmu, who is Geshem that we already heard about, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Now, that would be rebelling against King Artaxerxes. And this happened to King Artaxerxes a number of years before with the Israelites. So um, it's a serious threat. Not that the Israelites rebelled, but he got a letter like that, and he believed it. So it's very possible when he gets another letter like this that he would believe it. And so it says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. That's why you want that wall rebuilt. And you are to be their king, Nehemiah, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. That's what they're claiming Nehemiah is going to proclaim. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Now this is very dangerous. Then I, and let's hear what he says. Then I sent a message to him, to Sanballat and to Geshem and the others, saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, and that was the way to do it, that's for sure, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. We see from Nehemiah, there's going to be four things that we learn from Nehemiah throughout this. And the first thing is that he fears God, not man. Now, all of us have things that are fearful to us that man brings on us. And even Nehemiah, because he says many times, he says, you know, that it was trying to frighten him. So they were getting at him. But the thing that he kept doing was he kept before him the fear of God. And I just wanted to say one thing about the fear of God, because I think a lot of people don't understand what it is to fear God. To fear God, it's the same root word in the Hebrew as to revere God. 
And to revere God is to believe God in the things that he says. So when we revere God, we believe him. We don't just believe in him, we believe the things he says. And when we revere him, we believe him, and when we believe him, that actually is the exercise of faith. That's what it is. So to fear God is to have working faith in God. It's not just, you don't just believe that he's there, but you actually understand what he is saying in his word, and you believe it. And so that's what he says when um, he says to fear God, and he said it back in the last chapter that we didn't read, the fear of our God is with us, um, that we fear God. And Nehemiah is a man who has learned how to fear God, like to believe God, and to believe him for his great work. Already he's over there. Already this wall has gone up. And so he's seen God at work. And you know what? That's true of you too. There are things that God has done in your life already. And those are the things that you build on that you know, yes, God is answering prayers. Yes, God does um, promise to be faithful, and he is faithful in my life. It doesn't mean everything goes according to how we think it ought to go, but we do see that God is with us. And that is where we really are building that baseline of the fear of God versus the fear of man. Because what can man do to us? Man can't do anything to us that doesn't um, have to come through God. He's the one who's in control. I just wanted to read Psalm 34, verses 7 to 11 uh, to you. Okay, so it says there, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I like that verse. There's so many verses about the fear of the Lord, but I like this one because it says it's something that we have to be taught. It doesn't just come automatically. It's something that's built as we learn about the Lord. The next one is faith in God. He believed God. He had faith in God. And um, really, in Nehemiah's case, what is the faith in God that he had? For him, it was that God was actually going to complete this work. Remember, the gates are not up yet. and Those are not like, you know, just put up a door frame and put the door in. These are big monster gates. And they still have to be built. And so he still believes that God will complete the work. And he says, you know, I'm not done yet. I'm not coming to have conversation with you guys because God has called me to this work. And these guys have already shown themselves to be an enemy. Plus, there's other reasons to see them as an enemy that we'll learn as we work our way through the the book of Nehemiah. So he has faith in God for the completion of the work. And Philippians 1.6, it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me, in you, will carry it to completion, that he will make sure that it's perfected. It says completion in the NIV, perfected in the New American Standard. But what it means is that he's going to bring it right to the end. And for us, that's like right to the end of our life and beyond, that that's what faith is, is believing that God isn't just sort of, you know, working in you, and now, oh, he stopped. He's not going to work in you anymore. No, he's going to keep working in you, keep building that faith, keep building that fear in him. And so um, this is what Nehemiah believes. He's called to finish the wall. That's his calling, and he's going to finish it, and he believes that God is going to be with him in it. Next one is focus on God. So Nehemiah had this wonderful focus on God. So you notice that when these guys send um, these letters, that he turns his focus back to God. He says, you know, God is with us. God has called me to this work. And, I mean, we get curious. Well, what does that person want to say to me? But Nehemiah doesn't let that get the better of him. He stays focused on what God has called him to do. My question for you is, do you know what God has called you to do? He's called us to do something, and I have a decision in my life to make. And um, just preparing for this, the Lord said, what have I called you to do? Like, don't get distracted from that. Keep focused on what I've called you to do. Is that helping fulfill that or not? It's a simple thing to ask ourselves. If you don't know what God has called you to do, spend some time with him finding out, because he does have a plan for you. He tells us that he does. And so Nehemiah knew, and he directed his focus on God to keep his eyes on the Lord. Psalm 25, 15. 
says to us. I like to keep looking up. I want us to learn to be in our Bible. So if you have your Bible, look it up. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, not just sometimes, not just in the morning, but continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. In other words, there's a lot of nets for us waiting to capture us. You've all seen Tarzan and the nets that are always laid out for poor Tarzan. Well, the Lord, he protects us, and he keeps us from stepping into that net. And um, we do it by keeping our eyes continually on him. And the last one that Nehemiah does is fortitude. He has the fortitude in God. Fortitude is strength. It's from the Latin word forte, which is strength. And so we have fortitude in God. Um, he's strengthened. He's not demoralized. And that's the one, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So if you read in the verses before that, what Paul is writing He's not talking about just anything I feel like doing. I'll do it with the strength of the Lord because the Lord, he promised to give me strength for everything I feel like doing. No, he gives us strength for doing the things that he's doing through us. And so when we're called in suffering, when we're called in temptation, when we face um, any kind of difficulty or any kind of obstacle or any kind of big work that we have to do, maybe a difficult conversation we need to have with somebody, the Lord gives us the strength to do what he has called us to do. And He will, and his strength actually, like especially when we're fearful, and especially when we, um, like that's a really stressful thing to do, then we really see how God in his power works through us because actually it's not in us. It's not in us to be able to face those things most of us in our natural being would turn away. We wouldn't have that conversation. We would fall into temptation. We would be fearful of a particular big work that we think, oh, there's no way I'm capable of that. And we would not do it. But the Lord says, I will give you strength. And when we have the Holy Spirit within, which as a believer we have, then his power works through us. His spirit is working through us, enabling us to do the things that he's called us to do. So um, so we see Nehemiah has, and I, just, I think I really want you guys to be amazed that all these have the same letter, which every good sermon has, of which I've had one out of about 10 million. <laughs> to fear God, not to fear man. To have faith in God, not faith in myself and what I can do. To focus on God, not to focus on the problem. That's probably one of the biggest ones for us. We focus on the problem, and Nehemiah focuses on God. And to have fortitude in God and not to be considering it as failure. And so that was our man, Nehemiah. But his obstacles were not finished yet. Verse 10. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleiah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, so he's an invalid, and he's in his home. So he's um, called um, Nehemiah to come and visit him in his home. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you at night. So they're going to do it in the darkness. So they're going to sneak up on you, Nehemiah, and you're going to be dead. And so a safe place for us to go is to go and hide in the temple and we'll close the doors of the temple and they can't get in. So let's do that. But I said, Nehemiah said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. So he says that he will not enter into that temple. And we'll talk about why not. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. So this is his, it's now that he discerns this. So first he says, I'm not going to go in. And then he discerns, oh, this guy's against me. Um, that God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could not in order that they could reproach me 
Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, evil works, and also Noadiah the prophetess, so there's another one involved, a prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So just to unpack that a little bit, what's happening here is this guy, um, Shemaiah, he's saying that he has a prophecy, and it's backed up by Noadiah, the prophetess, and other prophets. These guys are false prophets. And the way that Nehemiah discerned that they were false prophets, because we were warned all through the Old Testament to beware of false prophets, and all the way through the New Testament to beware of false teachers. And this is how we discern who's false. And this is how Nehemiah did it. He looked at what is the word of God. He knew the word of God. And this is one of the things that we learn about Nehemiah is that he knew the word of God. And there's two things that he knew that the word of God had said. One is that he was called to do this great work and not to hide. Many times he has been encouraged by God to have that courage and strength and to not be fearful. Hiding is a fearful act. And so that one is not okay. So he says, should a man like me flee? Like I'll leave everybody else here and I'm going to go and hide? He's the leader. If the leader hides, what do you think the rest of the people are going to do? They'll be completely demoralized. And he says, no, a man like me cannot flee. So that's out. That can't be from the Lord because that's not what the Lord's been telling him. But also scripturally, this guy says, well, we'll go into the temple. And the fact is, Nehemiah is not a priest. And he knows what has happened before when People, even kings, have decided that they would just take the freedom of, of going wherever they want to in the temple. And there were certain places where they couldn't go, and there were definitely places, like the holy place, that they could not go in if they are not a priest. And even the priests weren't allowed to just go in and out. They had to have the purpose. They had to be assigned to it at that time. And so he knew this goes against the word of God. Anything that goes against the word of God we can dismiss as not being from God. It must line up with the word of God. And if it doesn't, and somebody tells you to do this, then they are false. They're either a false prophet or a false teacher. Or, you know, maybe they're just being out of it. But these guys we know have it in for Nehemiah. So these are false prophets. And so uh, Nehemiah is able to discern that. So... Um, we're going to, um, so the wall was completed on the 25th month of Elul, the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. So 52 days to build this enormous wall, and you can see in the background, maybe not very well, but in some of the pictures I've had, these enormous stones at, in the wall of Jerusalem. And he was able to rebuild this with all the people's help in 52 days, and that would indicate that the gates are up as well because the wall is completed. And the 25th of the month, Elul, is going to be very significant because we're going to see what happens five days later. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. So Nehemiah, in keeping his strength, has made his enemies lose their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So we see that in 52 days, God has used these people to accomplish his purposes, even with enemies constantly bothering them, trying to get them to stop. They just forged ahead under the leadership of Nehemiah. And also in those days, and this explains quite a bit, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now, if you remember way back at the beginning when we were studying Nehemiah at the, at the, at the start, and we learned about um, who was building the walls. And the people who built the walls were the ordinary people, a lot of the ordinary people, plus a lot of the priests and other people as well. But the nobles of Tekoa which is just in the southern region, and um, that's the place where Amos the prophet came from. The nobles of Tekoa, they were too proud to do that work. They refused to help. And so there were nobles in Judah that refused to help with the work. And you think, well, why would they refuse to help? Well, this explains it. Scripture always explains Scripture. It tells us why. 
For many in Judah, those nobles, were bound by oath to him, meaning um, to Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the, do- the son of Berechiah. That explains it all. <laughs> so if you put together the genealogies, and genealogies are important, you realize, oh, Tobiah the Ammonite has all of his kids married into the high priest's line. That's what happened. So the high priest of Judah has intermarried with the Ammonites, which they were forbidden to do, but it's given Tobiah a lot of influence. He's a rich man to begin with, and now he's also, all these families are married into his family, and because of the marriages, there's these covenants, these oaths of, um, like the dowries and things like that, where there's an agreement between the families not to have any kind of disputes and to be on the same side. And so these people of Judah, the high priest's household, has agreed to be on the same side as Tobiah's family, the Ammonites, which is bad. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds, Tobiah's good deeds, in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So they're keeping Tobiah completely informed of everything that Nehemiah is doing. And, um, you know, basically they're like spies in Nehemiah's circle. And so it's a real problem, and, ne- and Tobiah keeps trying um, to frighten them. So this is, this is a big thing that the Lord says. And if you are single, please listen. The Lord has a real problem with marrying outside of the faith. And the reason is, is because we form an alliance with somebody who's in the world still and who has not made that step of faith to leave the world. And I know that there are many amongst us who have made that mistake. And um, it's not that God can't forgive, because we know he does. That's not the issue. The issue is that we are constantly pulled in two directions. And honestly, it is very hard for us to have our focus on God when somebody that we are in covenant with has their focus on the world. And that makes it very difficult. It's hard enough in a Christian marriage, let alone in a marriage where you're not even on the same page. So if you're not there yet, don't go there. If you have done that, well then pray, because the Lord gives many promises in his scriptures that if we pray, we bring grace into the home. And that's a wonderful promise, even though we may have made a huge error that way, or maybe we've come to faith afterwards, which happens a lot. Then just keep praying, because God has promised that he will bless that home because of you. So just hang in there and um, keep following after the Lord. He will answer our prayers. So um, we see then that um, this intermarriage with the world, and it's, you know what, we, use, we understand that as actual marriage, literal marriage, but it's actually anything where we're married to the world. It could be a business partner that has a completely different idea of how to earn profits. It could be um, just our own heart is pulled to the world. And we feel like, oh, I like all this stuff in the world. You know, I like all this stuff. I want this stuff more than I want God. God's kind of remote and one of these days I'll get around to really worshiping him, that's being married to the world. And so God calls us to have that focus on him and to um, really have the strength within. Like he does all this for us. He gives us faith, he gives us strength, but he also requires us to step in. And so um, that's for sure what Nehemiah has done. Now, Nehemiah 7 is a lot of genealogy, and, you know, I could go through it and tell you all the interesting things there, but I won't. (laughs) That's for another day. Um, So Nehemiah, um, what happened was they found the book of the genealogy, and remember that Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries, so it's written actually in the book of Ezra as well. And so um, they read these genealogies, And they assembled everybody together. Um, They start off with those that returned from Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. That's way back when they came right under King Cyrus, and they came back and they rebuilt the temple. 
And so they recorded who returned with Zerubbabel, the nobles that came with him. And it's interesting, just one I want to pick up on, one is Azariah. And Azariah is the father of Sariah, we learn if we, you know, did some digging. And Sariah is the father of Ezra. So that kind of gives you an idea of how many generations have happened since they returned to rebuild the temple. And if we were to look on a timeline, we'd know it's 91 years. So it's been like two generations, basically, and uh, here they are now rebuilding the wall, which should have been done a long time ago, but it wasn't. Okay, so um, I just want to show you some of these places. Um, I'm sure you can read the details there. (laughs) I know you can't. But anyway, he breaks them up by family, by city, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, the sons of Solomon's servants, and then they get down to those unable to prove their lineage. So that just whipped us through the whole 61 verses. Um, so those who are unwilling to prove their lineage, is um, this is a bit of a problem. And these were they who came from Tel Mela, which is the reason I'm showing you this, and I know you can't read the, the um, names there, maybe you can if you're amazing, like if we have any Superman eyesight people here. But that's Persia, that dark blue, that's the empire of Persia. So these people are from all over um, the Persian Empire, who are also in Judah. So Tel is from the far part of Persia. Tel Harsha is from Ur. Remember where Abraham was called out of Ur? So that's down on the Euphrates. Um, Carab is Babylon, also way over there. Adon is the Persian Gulf, so that's that piece of water coming up on the bottom right-hand side. And Imar, which is where um, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers meet. So that also is way over um, near Susa and Ur and those places. So they're all from these um, places and came back. And they could not show their father's houses or their descendants whether they were of Israel. So they couldn't prove their lineage. The sons of Deliah. Who did I say was the son of Deliah? Shemaiah, he was the false prophet that we heard about just a few minutes ago. The sons of Tobiah, that Ammonite guy. The sons of Nakoda, and so on. Um, The priests as well. So they searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So they were claiming to be part of the priesthood, especially Tobias, because they've married into the high priest family. They're claiming to be part of the priesthood, but they can't prove their genealogy. And because they can't prove their genealogy, they must be Levites, and not only Levites, Kohites, so they can't prove anything. And so Nehemiah says, no, you're unclean. You cannot go into the temple, because we know what happens when unclean people go into the temple. They get destroyed. And so he won't let them um, go in. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. And so what he's saying is that we'll let the Lord decide. So that's how they, we call it casting of lots. We don't exactly know what the Urim and Thummim are, but they were held inside the pocket of the high priest's breastplate. And he would um, use that for determining the will of God. So basically they're saying we'll let the Lord decide. And you know what? Um, We think, well, you know, that's really an old practice. But I think actually it does have application for us. Because, um, you know, have have you ever watched somebody's actions and said, and they, you know, they're here, they claim to be a Christian, you go, I'm not so sure if they're a Christian or not. And then we decide. We decide if they are or not. Yeah, well, we're not supposed to do that. That's up to the Lord to decide. And he's the one who has determined who he gives his Holy Spirit to. That's, that's the deciding factor. It's not how they act. It's whether or not they have the Holy Spirit within. It's whether or not they have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. If they have trusted in Jesus, they may still have lots of behaviors that are still being worked out between them and the Lord. And that's not our business. Our business is to proclaim the word and to encourage each other in love and good deeds. That's what we're supposed to do. Not to judge whether or not, you know, you're a Christian. 
And um, you say, well, aren't we supposed to judge when people say things to us? That's a different thing. That's lining it up with the Word of God. We are supposed to discern what we say to one another, whether it aligns with the Word of God or not. But um, we're, not, we're not the ones who declare whether somebody's a Christian or not. That's God's business. So verse 73, now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, so that's the month after Elul, in Elul, the 25th day was the day they completed the wall. So that's the sixth month. Um, so now we know that it's like five days later. Um, that they came, when that came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So everybody had gone back to their surrounding cities, and now they're gathered back again. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. So the water gate is down in the southeastern um, portion of Jerusalem. And they asked Ezra the scribe. So this is the first time we see Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. So now we know for sure they're contemporaries. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And so it's five days later, and it's actually um, the seventh month. The seventh month is the sabbatical month of Israel. And it's when all the feasts of the fall are in. It's like September, October. And so they start with the Feast of Trumpets, which is also called the Feast of Ingathering, where they blow the trumpets and they call the people of Israel to come. So they're all in their cities, and they start to hear. And actually, now in Jerusalem, they start in the month of Elul to blow the trumpets to warn people, it's coming, it's coming. And they watch for the date. And then when on the first day of the seventh month, they're to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Trumpets, the, the calling of, Jeru of all the people of, of Israel to Jerusalem, to the temple. And so um, they call them there, and when they come, Ezra stands on a podium. They've built this podium, and Ezra's up there with a whole bunch of other um, Levites who are going to teach and translate, and um, he brings the, the law of Moses, the entire thing. So that would be like us saying, okay, everybody, stand up, because all the people are standing up. I'm not telling you to stand up, but let's pretend I'm Ezra for just a minute. Stand up, everybody, and I'm going to read to you from Genesis through to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when I'm finished, you can sit down. So five hours later, you get to sit down. Literally, five hours later, you get to sit down. And so uh, that's what the people were doing, and they were so keen to hear the word of God. So keen. And this, um, no, this is breaking out in a great revival in Israel as they reestablish everything. And no great revival ever happens without also a great hunger for the word of God by the people of God. And so when we love the word of God, when we desire to hear it, when we're not feeling like, oh, well, you know, here we go again, I'm bored by this. Um, when we are just keen to hear what the Lord has to say, that does break out in revival. And I really believe that God is doing a great work amongst us because this is a group of people, this is a body of Christ who loves the word of God. And God is going to do great things. So um, it always accompan accompanies revival. And there's great celebration. So this is what happens with the people. Um, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and, and he's also a scribe, which means that he's, um, he records all the law, and he's the one who decides what the law means, so he teaches. And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. They hadn't heard this for many, many, many years, maybe some of them not even in their lifetime, and never heard all the reading of the word of the law. And the word of the law tells them how they were to live, and they realized, we haven't been living like that. We haven't been doing these things. And they were weeping and mourning because they were full of remorse over this. And so they were grieving before the Lord. 
And Nehemiah says, and Ezra say, no, don't be grieving. This day is holy to the Lord your God. So if you follow the feast, it's the uh, Feast of the Trumpets, and then seven days later is the Day of Atonement, and then on the 15th of the month is the um, Feast of the of Booths or of Tabernacles. And so normally the Day of Atonement is the, the big day of mourning. The other days are festival days for Israel. And the Day of Atonement, we call it Yom Kippur today, that's the day of great mourning where um, they have the, the sacrifice of the goats and so on and so forth. So... Um, but I think here, because the timing is difficult and, and it's, it's sort of thought amongst um, the commentaries that they probably put it out of order a little bit because, they want, because of this um, huge thing that was happening, like this first that's happening. First that they're reading it, and as they read it, they go, oh my goodness, and the, you know, we're not doing this. And they bow down and they fall before the Lord and they're weeping and they're mourning. But it's also meant to be a time of great rejoicing. They just finished the wall. Everybody's, you know, in revival mode. And it's a time of great rejoicing. And so he says to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. In other words, Israel's always instructed, and so is the church, to take care of those who have not. And so they're instructed to do that. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, like stop your weeping, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And actually, this is very important before the Lord, this joy of the Lord. And, you know, we've heard it in the past that some Christians go around with a long face thinking, Oh, you know, I'm so tired, and I have worked so, so hard for the Lord, and I need to rest, and I'm mournful because all I see is sin, 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 and oh, when will the Lord ever return? (laughs) Have you ever seen anyone like that? (laughs) And the Lord says, no, he says, I want you to be joyful, Many, many times in the, in, the, in the word, he says, be joyful, sing, and rejoice, you people of God. And so that's what we're called to do, is to rejoice. And that's what they're doing here. Even though they're very aware of their sin, their joy doesn't mean that they think, oh, well, you know, sin's nothing. They are very aware of it. But the joy of the Lord is because we know, in spite of our sin, He has forgiven us, and we are free, like we are free from that burden. We have gotten rid of that burden, and we are not carrying it. Jesus took it at the cross, and so that's where our joy comes from. And I um, think that it parallels with with Jesus. I just want to read to you from Matthew. Um, Actually, I have it written out, so I'll just read it from here a little faster. Then the disciples of John came to him, meaning to Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom, because Jesus is the bridegroom, cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast, which we saw at the, um, at the cross, in those days of mourning after the cross and before the resurrection. They were in great mourning. And so um, when the bridegroom is with us, we rejoice. Now, we know in part, but we will know in full when the Lord returns. So right now, we have that certain hope before us, and we have that hope in the Lord that he is going to return. But in the meantime, he says, I haven't left you alone. I've given you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be within those who believe. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within so that you know the presence of God and so that you know that God is with you and he empowers you to do the things of God. And so um, that's what Jesus has given us and that's why we can even now rejoice. So I think of us coming here together every Sunday. And we come together so that we can rejoice. And it tells us in Hebrews that's exactly what we're doing. And um, he um, says to them in Hebrews 10, he says to the people, the writer of Hebrews is rebuking them, and he says, you know, some of you aren't doing this, so let us hold fast our confession 
of our hope without wavering, like our hope in Jesus Christ, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There you go right there. That's why we come together, is to encourage each other to love and to do good deeds. Good deeds are the deeds that God gives to us to do. Um, Not forsaking our own assembling together. Why do we come together every Sunday? Because the Lord told us to. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because that's where we get encouragement, to love one another and to do the good deeds of God. As is the habit of some, some aren't coming um, to the assembly, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord's return drawing near. So we're called to do that. So then... um, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they may gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths, or or like tents, during the feast of the seven months. Um, So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So they're listening and they're doing. And that's what James tells us, to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that's exactly what they're doing. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in their courts of the house of God. This is really one of the most joyful celebrations in Israel every year, is this one. And I have a friend who lives in Jerusalem, and she's in an apartment building, and that's what they do. They get all of these um, branches and things, and they make a tent for themselves out on their, um, what do you call that thing? balcony out on their balcony and uh, they live in the balcony for the whole week they don't live in in their apartment and they live in their balcony and so does everybody else and it's a time of great festivity and joy in in Israel and so they do this and um, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. That doesn't mean that they didn't celebrate, because we know, like Solomon did and David did, but what it means is, like, with such joy, with such vigor, with such love for the Lord and rejoicing in what God had done. They hadn't had that kind of rejoicing since the days of Joshua. And there was great rejoicing, and he, meaning Ezra, read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, or it's called a holy convocation in Leviticus, according to the ordinance. So it's essentially 21 days, 22 days for the holy convocation. Like that's a whole month, a whole month of celebrating. That's huge. I think we should go for that. I would love that. I think that would be so fun. Like we think if we get a week off at Christmas, wow, that's a lot. They get a whole month every single um, Sabbath month. And so that is the Sabbath month. But there's a reason for this. And um, Zechariah really explains it for us because the Sabbath month is a celebration of the three feasts. Those three feasts, we say, oh, yeah, feast, feast, Israel, Israel, you know, big deal. But it's like it's huge. And the reason that it's huge is because every one of those feasts represents Jesus Christ. I won't go into the other ones that we haven't touched on today, but these three feasts are all about the return of Jesus Christ. He has come the first time, and that represents Passover. His Holy Spirit came, and we call that Pentecost, which was their middle feast. And now this third set of feasts is the return of Christ. So really, in a big way, we should be celebrating these because it's looking forward to Christ's second coming. And it says in um, Zechariah, uh, the last chapter of Zechariah, verse, verses 16 um, to 21, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year. Now this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. When he returns, all the, now think about this, Jesus is reigning on earth. And he's reigning out of Israel. So Israel, Jerusalem, is Zion. And so here's Jesus in Zion. And um, all the nations go up 
year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, that is Jesus, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, because you can still choose in the millennial reign, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt, that's always slavery, does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord! And the cooking pots, like the ordinary things in the Lord's house, will be like the bowls before the altar. So it will all be consecrated to the Lord. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite or an unbeliever in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Like in the day that the Lord returns. What a promise, what a promise. And so that's what Zechariah is really teaching us, um, is that we are to be looking forward to that time when the Lord will return. So just to recap, the faithful versus the unfaithful. The faithful fear God. They have faith in God. They have their focus on God, and from him they receive fortitude for the work ahead. And so I pray that for each of you that you would have that faith and that focus on the Lord, that you would be in his word daily and read from his word and do his word because that will give you the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for all that you have given to us and you have given us everything that we need for a life of faithfulness and a life for doing the things that you have called us to. There's nothing that we are lacking that we don't have for the work that you have ahead for us. Lord, I pray, because we do become fearful, and we do um, worry, and we have high anxiety lots of times. When that happens to us, teach us to turn our eyes to you, to have our focus on you. Help us to find scripture that helps us through those situations. And we pray that we would be people that have fortitude, that have strength in you, our Lord, our God. And so I ask that even as a church, not just individually, but as your people collected together here, that we might go forth um, far more powerfully than we ever could on our own strength because your Holy Spirit is with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available. All are welcome.